This week's Swallow Your Pride guest is the incredible, internationally known Asha Fellow, Dr. Katrina Steele. I am so honored to have such a prolific researcher on this show. Uh, Dr. Steele is currently at the Toronto Rehab Institute, and she had 10 years of experience as a medical SLP before pursuing her PhD, which is one reason why I just adore her. Uh, she's still very much involved at the clinical level in our field. Dr. Steele has over 80 peer-reviewed publications. That's just mind-blowing to me. And she's presented at invited lectures in Europe, Japan, China, Australia, just to name a few. And she actually just returned from the World Dysphagia Summit and European Society for Swallowing Disorders, so she does give us some scoop from that. Dr. Steele is one of the main key players in the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative, also known as IDSI. You'll hear that reference many times in this episode. And she's also received international recognition for her work on tongue functioning and the swallow. Dr. Steele has a two-part series on MedBridge right now about tongue pressure resistance training, so check that out. Uh, And also, one of my most favorite series on MedBridge by Dr. Steele is her five-part series about best practices in video fluoroscopy. So if you're a MedBridge member, check that out. If not, my buddies over at the Speech Science Podcast are running a deal to purchase that annual membership for unlimited CEUs for only 95 bucks, and the free upgrades of the premium package with promo code SPEECHSCIENCE. So head over to MedBridgeEducation.com, purchase the SLP education plan with promo code SPEECHSCIENCE to watch Dr. Steele's awesome CU videos on lingual resistance and video fluoroscopy. In this episode, we discuss the importance of IDSI and standardizations among thickened liquids and texture modifications. We discuss skill-based training and the importance of rehabbing the swallow, as well as we get to hear about some of Dr. Steele's mentors and whose work has really inspired her. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. So I know you guys are always asking me what like the latest and greatest courses are as far as treatment. And I will totally admit since I do diagnostics all day that sometimes I fall behind on keeping up with the latest treatment CEUs. And I'd always heard that eSTEM was, you know, you know, it's so effective for PTs and OTs. You see them using it all the time, but there's definitely a lot of controversy with it as far as speech pathologists using it to rehab the swallow. So Believe me, I've been the ultimate skeptic on Easton for a while now, but uh, my buddies Rick and Russ from AmpCare, they swindled me into taking their online CEU course a few months back, and I'm not going to lie, you guys, it was so good. Like, I was totally hooked. And so Rick is a fellow SLP, just like the rest of us. Um, but Russ is a physical therapist with an extensive knowledge, eSTEM, that he's used as a modality throughout his entire PT career. So like I said, I took this course a while back uh, when I was actually studying for my board certification exam. Their CEU course is considered an advanced course. So for anyone that needs advanced CEUs, if you're working towards your BCS, uh, hop on this course. But anyways... 
the entire first half of the course is like all about basic muscle physiology, the makeup of the actual swallowing muscle fibers, a killer review of the cranial nerves, probably like the most elaborate review that I've had since grad school. And I'm pretty sure I didn't pay this close attention in grad school to the anatomy and physiology. But like I said, I was totally hooked on this course. Um, and you guys know I keep it real. I don't sugarcoat things here. So another thing that I just super appreciated about this course is they go into detail about the populations that are best served with this treatment and the populations that should not undergo e-STEM. So it's not a one-size-fits-all treatment, but it has shown some awesome outcomes as far as improving the swallow. And in their course, they also discuss why they use the electrode size and shape that they do, the various parameters on the unit, which it does vary from other Easton manufacturers. So that's important to note. So since Rick and Ross are super nice guys, they're offering 50 bucks off their CEU course exclusively for Swallow Pride listeners. So they have a bunch of upcoming live courses. There's one October 20th in Oklahoma City. And then they also have dates still need to be confirmed, but they are having live courses coming up in Seattle, LA, Phoenix, San Diego, and Dallas. So I would totally highly recommend you guys get to a live course if you can. These guys are so fun and they just make it really easy to understand this super complex info. Um, so if you're near any one of those cities, yeah, head to this course, but the cost of the live conference is usually 325 bucks, but 275 for Swallow Your Pride listeners. And if your facility does purchase the actual device, so the actual eSTEM unit costs $649 regularly, your training will be further discounted down to 200 bucks. But if you can't get to a live course, they're also offering 50 bucks off their online course which that's a course that I took and it's still, it's phenomenal, super entertaining. And just, like I said, it's a, this is a great course, but course will only cost you a hundred bucks. You can sit and watch it on your couch with a glass of wine and get 0.8 advanced CEUs. So also not going to lie, the training manual that comes with this course is really good too. I referred back to it so many times when I was studying for my BCS exam, just it's a great anatomy review, cranial nerve review. Yeah. That manual is great as well. So Go to swallowtherapy.com forward slash SYP to register for any of these courses. And also, if you just head over to their website, you guys, they have some really cool videos showing the eSTEM unit at work. And they also have a review of all the literature that they have to support their FDA cleared device and protocol. And yes, I am working on getting them on the podcast very, very soon. But anyways, go check out swallowtherapy.com forward slash SYP to check out their courses and sign up for this training. Okay, so first of all, I just want to extend my deepest sympathies to everybody out in Vegas. I know when this episode aired last week, I didn't have a chance to put anything in there about this, and I really regret it. I wish I was able to say something earlier, but a lot of you know I lived out there for a few years. Still, some of my closest SLP colleagues are out there. I love you guys. And yeah, I just wanted to extend my sympathies out there to you guys and the uh, amp care guys were going to do a training there last week, but so they decided to cancel that just out of respect for everyone there. Um, so as soon as they do decide on a new date, I will let you guys know that. So our iTunes review of the week comes from Cleveland SLP 
Oh, but wait first. <laughs> Someone on Twitter reached out to me, Nick M. It was. And he was telling me about all these reviews that they have, these iTunes reviews that they have over in Europe. And no, I didn't know that. I did not see them. So he hooked me up with a way that I can read uh, the iTunes reviews from our friends in Europe. So anybody that's in Europe that's listening, I know there's people in Australia that are listening. That's totally cool. I hope you guys are learning something about SLP dysphagia life here in the States. But thank you for listening. And our, yeah, so back to our iTunes review of the week from Cleveland SLP, writes, such an enjoyable listen to and from work. I'm constantly finding myself screaming, yes, at my car audio system, knowing other SLPs just get it. It's such a disservice, not only to our patients and clients, but also to our SLP community when we don't use evidence-based practice. I have all my coworkers hooked. It's usually the first thing we talk about when we get to the office. Uh, thank you. That is the whole point of doing this podcast. Like, I know I keep saying this like a broken record, and I, I don't know that some of us don't try to use evidence-based practice. I know there are some that are just resistant to it for who knows whatever reason, but, you know, there's just so much out there that we still just don't, aren't, aren't getting the information out there. So I'm glad I can provide that that service to our field and get some really cool researchers on here to explain what they've been doing. So it's been fun. So Without further ado, here is Dr. Steele. Hello, Dr. Steele. Hi, Teresa. It's really nice to meet you. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I'm I'm so honored that you <laughs> would would accept my invitation to be on this podcast. Oh, well, these podcasts are a kind of exciting new way to reach out to people. They are. They are. There's so much good information out there, and we're kind of all on our own little dysphagia islands, and it's difficult to get to all the CEU courses that we want to. So sure, you know, if we can sure. find a way to spread the news in a kind of a light, easy, inexpensive way, I'm all for Absolutely. it. So Dr. Steele is probably one of the most prolific researchers we have in our field, and she's currently in Toronto, and I'll let you spill the beans on the rest of yourself. I started out as a speech pathologist and I actually went into the field thinking I was destined to be an aphasia clinician. And then I don't think I even knew we did swallowing when I started my training. And then we, we had about 18 hours in our program on dysphagia. And then I had one of these wonderful final clinical internships where my eyes just were opened. I had a supervisor who really loved video fluoroscopy. So I got to spend a lot of time in the fluoro suite and I, I was hooked. Yeah. And my first clinical job was in a home for the aged here in Toronto, where I was a sole clinician to 600 beds of people with dementia. And we happened to have a video fluoroscopy in the facility. And so I learned a lot there. And then I moved into acute care for about four years and I became really frustrated as a clinician. I really loved dysphagia assessment. And yet it seemed that we'd spend all this time doing careful, detailed assessments and trying to figure out what wasn't working. And we would default to a generic intervention. And embarrassingly, I even put a poster into a conference around that time, <laughs> um, which was like, do modified barium swallows change my practice or something along those lines? And they didn't at the time. Yeah. And so I was questioning whether they were necessary because on the treatment side, we just had this default, which was thickened liquids and pureed foods. Yeah. And so I thought we have to be able to do better. And that's really what drove me back 
to do my PhD. Absolutely. I was really inspired by a workshop that Maggie Lee Huckabee gave around that time. She seemed to have some magic about her. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I thought, you know, I want to do that too. So that was how I sort of embarked on my research journey. And I haven't looked back. I found that we needed to dig below the surface, that we weren't ready to ask big trial questions. Uh, We had to lay a foundation of evidence. And that's what I've been up to for about 15 years now. All right. So I run a research lab here at the Toronto Rehab Institute. I don't live 100% in a university. For me, it's worked out probably better because I'm in the clinical institution. There are real live clinicians, a floor down from me, and we interact. I joke that I interfere with their clinical practice and there are real patients around. And so it's really important for me that my research is inspired by real clinical questions. Absolutely. And so that's what we're up to. I have four doctoral students and we're just super busy. That's great. Well, thank you for being open and admitting you were embarrassed about a paper that you submitted. You know, the whole topic, the whole title of this podcast is Swallow Your Pride. You know, we've been doing so much textbook, cookbook assessment and treatment for so long. And now we're really going into things a lot more eyes wide open and admitting what we did wrong. And that's all right. Take a step back. And now we know better. And absolutely. So thanks to people like you for opening our eyes. Well, we're all learning. We are. Absolutely. I just listened to a couple of your podcasts when you were telling the story of you being hooked up to the EMG biofeedback. Yeah. I mean, that was me. Yeah. That was me with Maggie Lee Huckabee and realizing, oh my God, I I thought I'd been teaching the Mendelssohn maneuver to my patients for however many years and I can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of earth shattering. It is very much so. It's humbling. All right. So first of all, I just want to dive into kind of your latest and greatest project Mm. that we have going on here. So IDSI is what it's deemed. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about where it came from? Sure. I'm really privileged to be part of this task force of 12 people around the world who come from a whole variety of different backgrounds. So speech pathology is a bit top heavy. We're probably four of the 12, but we also have on the task force, an occupational therapist, some doctors, nurses, dietitians, fluid mechanics engineers, and nutrition scientists, the gamut. And we all come together for the same reason, and that is a passion about achieving greater clarity and greater safety for people with dysphagia by communicating clearly about texture modification and thickened liquids. So when I said a few minutes ago that, you know, I was a frustrated clinician because we had this generic intervention, back when that was me, we were reliant 100% on thickener powders. And I remember being really frustrated at the nurses who seemed not to know how to thicken liquids according to my ideal instructions. And yet the challenge of taking a powdered thickener and hoping to get something predictable and uniform out the other end is, is not small. And there's actually a great research article published, I think about 1998 by Glassburn and Dean. And they did this 
experiment with speech pathologists. They laid out six cups of apple juice and they said, and here's some powdered thickener, mix three of those cups to nectar thick and three of those cups to honey thick. And then they packaged the cups up and took them off to the science lab and measured their viscosity. And as in any study, there are probably some methods you could take issue with in terms of how long did it take to get those liquids to the lab and that sort of thing. But what they found was that across clinicians, there was zero agreement in how thick a nectar was or how thick a honey was. They were all over the map. And even within a clinician from cup to cup, people were eyeballing. And so what came out the other end was not predictable and uniform. And our whole drive to make patients safer through modifying liquids and foods rests on this idea that we know how to modify those products. How thick is thick enough? And one of your podcasts brought up the fact that we now believe there's such a thing as too thick. So what is this sweet spot? Julie Chicaro, who's another of my colleagues on the ITSI task force, she and I talk about the Goldilocks paradigm that, that speech pathologists are trying to find yeah. a liquid that's not too thin and not too just thick, right, yep. but just right for the patient. And the reality is we don't even know whether just right is the same for a group of patients or whether yep. it's highly individual. Because at the moment, the sort of units of measurement that we've been able to use are really blunt. And it's sort of a general feel of it's this thick. And across products, yep. across pre-thickened, from cup to cup when you're using a powder, yep. there's variation. And so if we're going to advance this field, if we're going to have quality and better safety for our patients, yep. we need to be able to communicate. So we were really challenged by the fact that using viscosity as a measurement makes this inaccessible to everybody. I learned the hard way. Once upon a time, I rented a viscometer <laughs> and tried to use it in my kitchen and realized immediately that I was totally out of my depth. And then I, over the years, got some training, learned how to do viscosity measurements. Let me tell you, they're the most tedious task you can okay. imagine. <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to start. So No. And I think there are actually some legitimate questions about whether strictly measured viscosity on a $250,000 rheometer yeah. translates well to thickness in the pharynx. There are a number of things that could bring that into question. So for example, when you do a measurement on a rheometer, you have to make sure there are no bubbles in the liquid. Yeah, We're going to have messy liquids that we put in our mouths and we don't have that control over that kind of thing. And there's a big issue called shear rate, which is really complicated, but we don't know what shear rates are happening in the mouth and pharynx. They're probably quite large in range and viscosity has to be quoted at a particular shear rate. And because we don't know where to quote it, we don't know what we're comparing. And the reality is that viscosity measurements are just not going to be accessible to patients and their families and their kitchens, to those of us in hospitals and institutions. And even, this might shock people to know, but a lot of the industry manufacturers of these products don't have access to viscosity as a measurement. Wild. Yeah. So when yeah. they say things like nectar thick, we take them at face value. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, is it? Is it really nectar thick? I remember actually when the National Dysphagia Diet came out and Kathy Pelletier and Gary McCullough and I were commissioned to do a review of the science behind it for ASHA. And we had a number of concerns, but one of them was in the National Dysphagia Diet, there are these categories from zero to 50 is thin. And then magically at 51, you're, you're nectar thick. So really is the difference between 49 and 51 yeah. clinically 
relevant. We don't have anywhere yep. near that kind of information. So with ITSI, we, we actually did a really fun and I think clinically relevant process of deciding on our categories. We sourced thickeners from around the world. We had, I think, 17 or, or more than that. And we were in this big room and we laid out these rows of cups of liquid, four rows deep. And we took each thickener and we followed the instructions on the can or whatever it was to make four levels of thickness. So a nectar honey pudding in, in North American terminology, and then one that was between okay. thin and nectar. So half nectar, if you will. Then we had, you know, these columns where all the liquids were nominally nectar thick or honey thick, and there were 17 or more of them. And we could look at them and we could compare <laughs> um, them. And it was hysterically funny because the range of behavior of these liquids was huge. There was one nectar thick liquid that just poured off the spoon like water. There was another one right beside it that I will never forget because I could lift up the cup with the spoon yeah. because it was turned it over. Yeah, yeah. It was like yep. cement. Yep. <laughs> so yes, by following these instructions, we had all of these variations. And it was clear that we had a problem. And so then what we did, and statistically, this is kind of funny to look at, because what we actually did was what statisticians would call a principal components analysis or a factor analysis. We abandoned the labels and we started grouping these cups of liquids into clusters that behaved similarly. And we found out that we had sort of five groups, thin and then four levels of thickness, which is what clinicians had told us they wanted. And then we started describing them based on these clusters. And one of the biggest breakthroughs was that we decided to use a syringe for a flow test. Yep. And this is a type of flow test called a gravity flow test. We didn't invent it. It's uh, okay. it's out there. <laughs> and there are sort of two ways you can use gravity flow tests. You can look at how fast a liquid flows through a pipe or a chamber. And that was one option. But we decided to set the time at a fixed time interval of 10 seconds and look at how much is left behind after 10 seconds. So it's quite straightforward. There is a little bit of a twist in that you have to have the right syringe. What kind of syringe is that? Well, it, a slip tip syringe and the model number that we're recommending is ED syringe. The model numbers are up on the ITSI website. Okay. But one of the tricks is is that if you take a ruler and measure from the zero to the 10 milliliter line outside the syringe, that should be 61.5 millimeters long. And that tells us that you've got the right dimensions of your syringe. Okay. Another really practical check is to fill the syringe with 10 milliliters of water and to time how long it takes the water to exit the syringe completely. And that should happen in seven seconds. Okay. So if it's going faster, you might have a syringe where the nozzle is wider or where the dimensions are different. And so it is important to try to get the right syringe. Okay. But what we found is people, I think people were waiting for something that was straightforward and practical and accessible yeah. and people have been picking up syringes and they're finding that they can do this test easily. Yeah. And so there's this revolution going on out there. Of Absolutely. People recategorizing products on their diets. There's a very predictable stage where people become highly alarmed when they realize that something that they thought was nectar is testing honey yeah. or maybe testing thinner. We sort of empowered people to recognize variations that were already there that may be clinically significant that they had been ignoring. Yeah. One of the greatest examples I think is soup. 
So in the hospital where I work, it turns out that soup was thickened for people on nectar thick consistencies. And the kitchen had a recipe. They would add the same amount of thickener to the soup every day. Didn't matter what the type of soup was. And so the chicken broth would get, you know, I don't know, two teaspoons of thickener per hundred mils. And so would the cream of mushroom soup or the cream of potato soup. And then when the syringes came out, they suddenly realized, oh dear, some of these soups don't need thickening at all. They're already thick and some of them need more thickener than others. So to get the same consistency out the other end, they, they created a whole new problem. They needed different recipes for every flavor of soup. And so I think that's an illustration of the knowledge that can come from this simple test. Absolutely. Temperature change. Is the flow of the liquid the same when it leaves the kitchen as it is when it's been sitting in front of the patient for an hour on their tray? Probably not. Yeah. And so we're now, people have this opportunity now to check consistency right at the point of service and have more confidence. Yeah. And maybe to say, oh, today, this this is not the right consistency. I don't think you should eat this today. And, you know, we're focusing on the liquids here, but there are also tests for the food side. I'm, in fact, the food side is more challenging, more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if I can call out two things that I think people should really pay attention to on the food side. Uh, one is that bread is outlawed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on yeah. The, um, and that's challenging because yeah. we know, you know, bread is a staple food in many places around the world, but it's also the number one cited cause of choking deaths. Uh, and I'm glad you said that because a couple of facilities that I go to, they have a puree plus bread level of diet. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, puree plus bread? We're putting no. these people to have you know, moderate to severe dysphagia and giving them bread. There's a disconnect here. So I do think the more I look at this, that there's a gap in our clinical assessment tools, instrumental assessment tools too. We don't actually have a good measurement of choking risk. When we say to somebody, I think you can or can't have bread, it's ultimately a very subjective evaluation. So I, I look forward in the next decade to us developing something there. But for now, bread is only included on level seven of the ITSI framework, which is a regular diet. The other thing is the bite size. So at level six, which was originally called soft, it's now called soft and bite size. There's a very strict specification in the ITSI framework for how large the pieces of food need to be. And the maximum size is 1.5 centimeters in a dimension. That's about the size of a thumbnail. Okay. And a really quick check is to take a teaspoon or a fork. The width of a teaspoon or a fork is about 1.5 centimeters. So if the piece of food fits like within the dimensions of the utensil, then it's probably okay. If it if it's a bit larger than that, then it's not okay. And this is a size dimension that was chosen related to choking risk and related to our knowledge of tracheal airway diameter so that if it's smaller than 1.5 centimeters, it is unlikely to actually obstruct the airway. And so that's turning out to be a challenge uh, on a lot of diets because casseroles and so forth that are being outsourced and provided by catering companies outside often have chunks in them, particularly of vegetables that are larger than 1.5 centimeters. And so then there are questions about, you know, Do you say these casseroles are not allowed for people on a level six soft and bite-sized diet? Do you try to cut the pieces? Who cuts them? Can that be done at the bedside? And can you expect 
the family member or the nurse or the patient to be compliant? Or do you want to take that safety risk back into the kitchen and do it there? So there's a lot of questions around implementation of those guidelines. But for this generation of ITSI, and it probably will be refined in maybe five years once we have more evidence, 1.5 centimeters is the strict upper boundary for adults and half of that for children, Okay, probably up to about age 12. Well, that's extremely valuable information. I know, you know, on, on a lot of the Facebook groups and a lot of the different boards, people are constantly saying, oh, it, my facility serves, their nectar thick is way too thin or it's so thick it's cement. And so everyone just kind of throws out, we'll try the the flow test and so many people are well I don't know what the ITSI flow test is yeah. so thank you for illustrating exactly what you do and then like you you're said, welcome it's so exciting to see it happening and yeah. I think one of the things for me that's so exciting is the opportunity to actually match or understand the mapping between our barium stimuli that we use in video video fluoroscopy to the real liquids that are coming up from the kitchen yeah and if we find out that we don't have barium stimuli that match then we need to pursue that, we need to find ways of making stimuli that are a better match so that our assessments are more valid. Yeah. There's lots to come. I think it's a starting point. It's really about communication. Absolutely. We currently have an NIH grant. We sort of, our big goal is to rewrite our textbooks about what really happens physiologically as we change liquid consistency. So we're using the ITSI flow levels rather than viscosity. And we're trying to understand you know, which swallowing parameters change? Yeah. And do they change in logical, predictable ways? And that's in healthy people. And then we're moving into some different disordered populations. And, you know, it may turn out that in healthy people, there aren't five real levels. I don't yeah. know. I'm, yeah. I, I'm speculating here. Yeah. But maybe in patients there are. Yeah. Um, or maybe there are 10. I don't know. But in five years, we'll be armed with much more data. And then we can redo protocol 201. I know several yeah. of your speakers have highlighted protocol 201. Yes. And one of the limitations of protocol 201, and particularly the three-month trial where they were looking at pneumonia outcomes, is people were sent back to their facilities with powdered thickeners. And so whether they really got nectar thick yeah. is a question. And a huge issue in protocol 201 is that what they called honey wasn't honey. It was, in fact, pudding thick, according Ugh. to the National Disfigured It was twice as thick as the definition of honey thick at the time. Oh, wow. And so the bad rap that honey thick liquids got out of that study may be appropriate or may not be appropriate. What it really says is there definitely is something that is too thick. Yeah. But, and I always kind of like to bring it back home and what is the clinical applicability of this? And I think a big advocacy project could be joining the SLP and the dietary staff or the dietary manager in your facility and spend an afternoon, go through, do the IDSI flow test, evaluate the bite size, evaluate, you know, what recipes have bread in them. I think that Absolutely. would be a great collaborative project. It's a big project. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's one of the other beautiful things about it see, is that it brings different disciplines together yeah. around a common problem. And we don't have to argue about who has scope of practice at yeah. all. We're all focused on the same objective, which is better quality control and safety for our patients. Yeah. And we learn a lot. You know, one of the breakthroughs in the ITSI development was the realization that pureed foods uh, at level four have exactly the same characteristics as extremely thick liquids. They're a single category. And we kept 
the two sides, we kept the food side and the liquid side because we were taught that in kitchens, it's important to know whether this is a food or a drink. And uh, we could debate whether soup is a food or a drink, but um, nutritionally it's considered a food and yet it comes in liquid form. You know, I think that was revolutionary. I can remember, vividly remember conversations with dietitians who said, you know, you're telling me that the patient needs this thickness, but at the same time, we're sending them foods like applesauce, for example, that are thinner than that and they're coping. So there's something not logical here. And I think that ITSE framework has brought those kinds of issues into clarity. Well, that's great. Any final thoughts on ITSE? We'll shift gears here a little bit. Um, Just to say that the website is a work in progress, has a lot of resources. So go there. It is ITSE.org. I-D-D-S-I. So if you're thinking of doing projects, we're actually, we had our board meeting last week. We're hoping to be able to share an implementation guide or checklist very soon for people that would like to know the steps that people have been following. All of the research is open access, so there are links to the articles there. The syringe flow test instructions are there. The food testing instructions are there. And we're in the process of getting translations done. It's a volunteer thing. So if people speak languages other than English and would like to help, there's a process for that. And actually, Luis Riquelme, who many of your listeners may know as the current chair of the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders is leading the translation awesome effort. Yeah. So yeah, it's a it's just a really exciting thing to be part awesome. of. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds great. Okay, so let's hang on one second. So you all know how much I totally value continuing education and well, basically the whole reason why I started this podcast anyways is because I want the good information circulating out there. I want the evidence-based practice information circulating out there. So for this month of October, I am partnering with Carolina Speech Pathology. They are a mobile fees provider and an ASHA-approved CEU provider to offer an exclusive discount for Swallow Your Pride listeners. So I chose to partner with CSP because of their focus on topics related to dysphagia. So included in this offer is the Understanding Fees course taking place on November 3rd in Fort Lauderdale, Florida and November 17th in Richmond, Virginia. So both of these courses are taught by Selena Reese. She's a board certified swallowing specialist with many years of experience performing fees. So this is not a fees training course, but basically just learning how to understand and interpret what you're seeing, which I think is great. I think we need so many more courses like this out there. And then also, do you remember our fan favorite, Ed Bice, from episode one? Well, he is also teaching a one-day course in Raleigh, North Carolina, on December 1st, titled Evidence-Based Practice in Dysphagia Rehabilitation. That sounds incredible. I could just sit and listen to Ed talk for hours. I'm sure it's going to be a great course. But Ed will describe updates in research and highlight evidence-based techniques for rehabilitating swallowing. So everyone's always asking for more and more and more treatment, more and more rehab Here you go. Go see it December 1st in Raleigh. You can find more information on these courses at www.carolinafees.com. If you register during the month of October, you'll receive 25% off the CEU courses with the coupon code SYP for Swallow Your Pride. So go get your learn on, kids. 
Well, we're going to switch gears here a little mm-hmm. bit and ev- everyone gets all excited for my final question about what, you know, was a game changing practice or treatment for you. So I'll go ahead and ask you sure. this now because I know we're going to, we'll expand on it too. So I've chosen three people rather than articles specifically. Okay. And I, it's really been fun to listen to some of your previous podcasts and to be a little bit annoyed because people have stolen my ideas. <laughs> but so the first person I want to bring out as somebody who's really been a game changer for me is Susan Langmore. And yeah. I know that Yvette talked about the 2002 article on predictors of aspiration pneumonia. First of all, maybe I'll just say why Susan is a game changer for me personally. Personally, so in actually about 1996, I was going to a conference in the Detroit area. Susan was at Ann Arbor, and I was a clinician. And I, I don't think I emailed because I'm not sure we had email at the time. (laughs) Maybe we did. Anyway, I contacted her and I asked, would she be willing to have me come and shadow her for a day and meet with her? And she said yes. And I was toying with the idea of a PhD at the time. And she was, she was good enough to spend a whole day with me talking, discussing research. And she really, she encouraged me. So my husband and I were joking the other day about who we blame for, <laughs> for this change in my career. And Susan was certainly somebody who opened doors for me and continues to this day to be somebody that whose opinion I really value and opportunity to discuss openly. She's open-minded. Yeah. But rather than her 2002 article, for me, actually, it was her 1998 article, which is also about predictors of pneumonia, was seminal. That one was retrospective and done in the VA system as part of what was called the Geriatric Oral Science Project. And it calls out, again, that dysphagia by itself is not an adequate predictor for pneumonia. It calls out the fact that people with feeding tubes have a higher risk of pneumonia, not a lower risk of pneumonia. And in that article, they really highlight the oral health side of pneumonia. But what I think I just want to point out here is that it's kind of interesting to put the two articles side by side, the 1998 and the 2002, and ask, why did they come up with different sets of predictors? What is it that, why did oral health show up in one and not in the other? So it turns out, I think the reason <laughs> is that in the 2002 article, which was prospective in nursing homes, they used the minimum data set as the tool to gather information about patients. And they found that dysphagia was a predictor, but oral health is nowhere in the list. So you have to stop for a moment and ask, why? And then to think, well, is the minimum data set the issue here? Is this tool missing? important factors. And it turns out that in the minimum data set, the definition of dysphagia is prescription of pureed food and thickened liquids. So we might want to take a little bit of a caution in globally accepting that, but um, oral health isn't captured at all in the minimum data set. So the fact that it didn't show up doesn't mean it's not real. It just means that we didn't ask the question. Yeah. So that's a sort of way for me to say, and I really love the fact that your podcast is engaging clinicians in looking to the literature. Yeah. As I've listened, one of the sort of alarm bells that's been going off a little bit in my head is to remind people that research needs to be transparent and every research study has limitations. So we need to stop and ask, are the tools that have been used sensitive? Are they logical? Are they asked, you know, is it 
asking the right question, and then have the authors help us up front appreciate the limitations of their study. If somebody hasn't got a limitations section, <laughs> then we should be asking whether yeah. they're hi- hiding something, really. Yeah, yeah. So look for the limitations section. And then there's always the nasty question about whether the stats have been done correctly. <laughs> and just to say, there's a lot of literature that gets published these days where the stats haven't been done correctly and where we need, I think, just have a little bit of a question. So we want to look for things that are replicated. Big numbers don't necessarily mean that it's a really great study. And so we just need to hold researchers to those standards. Yeah. Well, and thank you for spelling that out because I, you know, I know I have so much respect for researchers too. And we we really do look at you guys as the holy grail. So it's good to hear that. We're learning too. Yeah, yeah. You may know that I've recently took on the challenge of writing a retrospective article about what we've learned in 20 years of using the penetration aspiration scale. It was really interesting and yeah. <laughs> really challenging at the end of the day to say, look, you know, some of the ways we've been using this scale in the last 20 years might be wrong. We yeah. might need to change direction a bit. Uh, particularly statistically. So we'll see where that discussion goes, but so far, so good. So then the second person uh, is Maggie Lee Huckabee, who definitely has been a big influence in my life. And uh, as I said earlier, when I first saw her talking about EMG biofeedback, I thought she had some magic about her. So in terms of her writing, actually, it was her first, the first edition of her textbook, which was co-written with Kathy Pelletier, that is the writing that was seminal for me. The book is now, I think, in its third or fourth edition with Stephanie Daniels as the new co-author. And I haven't looked at the most recent edition, but the most important chapter in the first edition for me was chapter 11, which was written by a patient. And the patient had been a lady with a severe brainstem stroke, I think, could have been skull-based tumor. Anyway, she had she had no swallow. And eventually she found Maggie Lee and she did some really intensive EMG biofeedback therapy and she regained her swallow. And she talks about the personal experience of what it was like to live with the inability to swallow and then what it's like to journey back to the ability to swallow. And I found that chapter hopeful, inspiring, humbling in terms of the things we take for granted as clinicians. She talks about how she couldn't swallow her saliva, so she had to find discrete ways to expectorate her saliva in public and how socially abnormal that was. So that chapter for me was inspiring. But I think that the things that the questions that have come out of my reading and my collaboration historically with Maggie Lee are around, first of all, transparency and methods. We need to be able to replicate what each other does. And so when we use words like the Mendelssohn maneuver, how do we know that we're all doing it the same? And EMG biofeedback is one step in that direction. But maybe the topic to pick up here is effortful swallow, because I'm aware that in the last couple of weeks, there's been a bit of chatter on social media based on two papers that were presented at the European Society for Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders, which showed that the effortful swallow was actually potentially maladaptive in some patients. And this comes full circle for me back to how do we do an effortful swallow? Where's the effort? And in 2006 and 2007, Maggie Lee and I published a couple of papers looking at this, and we compared two different ways of doing the effortful swallow. One was a tongue emphasis, where the tongue was pushing off against the alveolar ridge as a way to generate a more effortful 
drive. And the other was a pharyngeal emphasis where we said sort of the common instruction, like imagine that you are swallowing a whole grape or a big chunk of steak all in one go. And I think that's still an instruction that a lot of people use. And it's in fact, the instruction that was used in one of these two studies that were discussed at ESSD. And it appears that when people are trying to create effort in the pharynx, that we sort of lose our roadmap. Nobody seems to know exactly how to do this. We don't have tools that are really picking up the right things. So surface EMG is measuring floor of mouth muscle. There's real question. In fact, I would say it's not picking up information related to pharyngeal constriction. So if we wanted to measure the strength of pharyngeal constriction, we would need to be using high resolution manometry. I don't think there's any question about that. And Maggie Lee has been doing some work with manometry biofeedback, which is kind of cool. The thing is, people seem to do these pharyngeal emphasis effortful swallows in a whole variety of different ways. And they may tense all of the muscles in their thorax and neck and then try to swallow against this tension. And that's actually not creating a higher driving force for the bolus. So we need to do this better. We need to be able to measure what we're changing and recognize that with all of these behavioral techniques, Mendelssohn maneuver, effortful swallow, Masako maneuver, you can do it wrong, right? And you can do it in a way that is maladaptive for the patient. And so to be really careful about that and the hard line here, and I think most of your listeners will appreciate this is, I think you need to see it. You need to visualize it and know that it is being done in the way that is intended to have any sense that it's being done properly and helpful and you shouldn't be doing it blind. And EMG biofeedback gives you part of the story, but you cannot do that without keeping your clinical eyes on and your clinical attention on to make sure that somebody isn't creating a beautiful picture with a signal while doing something completely different. I actually proved this point a few years ago where I was trying to make a teaching video about simultaneous EMG on the left and right side of whatever. And I can make beautiful, beautiful Mendelssohn maneuver pictures with an electrode attached to my arm and my hand doing fist clenching Ah. exercises. So, you know, that's extreme. Yeah, yeah. You know, if my general experience is that if a patient has impaired sensation and can't tell me, about what they felt, then EMG biofeedback is not enough because it can be confusing and uh, you can follow the signal too much. So that's Maggie Lee. Yeah, that's so funny what you say. That's exactly what I was doing when I was hooked up to the SEMG. I was so tense in my neck and trying to like essentially swallow a golf ball is what I felt like. It was completely pharyngeal. And then that's what they said to me is, no, put your tongue tip on your alveolar ridge and almost push back. And that was when I quote unquote, got it. But I was like, that felt so different than what I'd been doing or what I'd been relaying to my patients. Yeah. yeah. So Mike, you know, we're always looking for analogies. I used to have an analogy where I talked about the pharynx being like a tube of toothpaste or a tube of frosting. And we need to squeeze the walls to try to move things down. And we have this great, you know, area of constriction at the bottom. And if you 
have a, a hole in the side of your tube of frosting, like an open airway, <laughs> then yeah. it, you know, it becomes messy. But my favorite analogy right now is for the tongue emphasis, effortful swallow. I do a lot of work with tongue pressure training. But for me, the analogy is, is swimming. And specifically when racers are going to do a backstroke length, they crunch themselves up against the wall of the swimming pool <laughs> and they spring off the wall. And I think that's what our tongues do on the alveolar ridge. And so if we squeeze harder against that alveolar ridge um, as we initiate the driving force, I think you get an effortful swallow. Yeah, yeah. And it's very different than the golf ball approach. Very much so. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. we need to do another study where we compare the different instructions now that we've learned yeah. more over the years. Yeah, and I think that really, for lack of a better word, drives home the point of lingual pressure and how important that is in the swallow. I think sometimes we get so compartmentalized into just working on laryngeal elevation and pharyngeal squeeze, but we do need the resistance from the tongue too to make it all work together. Yeah, maybe one final comment here that definitely uh, Maggie Lee inspired me on is the idea that these are exercises we do in therapy. And actually, most of the time I do these without Ebola's. So saliva yeah. swallowing, there's actually plenty of mounting evidence that to do some of these weird manipulations of your swallowing mechanism with Ebola's is dangerous. So we practice a practice, practice, practice with saliva swallows. Then we go and eat a meal. And when we're swallowing in the context of real eating, we don't have to think about standing on our head and touching our toes and pushing off with our tongues. We just swallow normally. And the hope is that through the block intensive practice of these strategies in therapy, that something has carried over. And that's the emphasis of rehabilitation as opposed to compensation. Yeah. We're at the beginning. We have so, yeah. oh my gosh, so yes. much to learn here. Yeah, yeah. And then the third group that really have sort of been influential for me are Kathy Kendall and, and Rebecca Leonard. And between about 2000 and maybe 2008, they published a whole series of papers analyzing video fluoroscopy, both in healthy, older people, and then some patient group. But what they did was objective timing measurement. And so they really opened up my eyes to the fact that this is possible. We can sit down, we can measure this objectively, we shouldn't disagree on the results, it's counting. And that with standard protocols and standard operating definitions for what we're measuring, it's possible to get very, very high reliability in these measures and to start to define normal. And so normal versus something that isn't in the normal range. And so that for me has been seminal. We're doing a lot of that work now these days. You start to, when you see something that's highly variable in normal people like hyoid excursion, you start to ask why? Why can't we pin this down? And you know, we've learned over the years that height matters. You know, you move your hyoid just far enough for you because your neck is this long. And so men move their hyoids further than women, for example. And that's like stride length. Yeah. Tall yeah. runners have bigger stride length than short runners. It's a similar kind of thing. And so their work for me has been really, really important. And I think that as a sort of complement to the current excellent work in calibrating subjective impressions in video fluoroscopy using methods like the MBSIMP. The possibility to go beyond that and actually measure is there. And I think we're starting to identify sort of a minimum set of measurements that tell the story. And so that's, that's been important for me. 
Yeah, yeah, very much so. I think that's kind of one of the big where everyone gets discouraged in dysphagia education these days is their sole dysphagia class in grad school is all on the disordered swallow. Yes. And then we have nothing to compare it to because we don't have the solid foundation of normal swallowing. So you have your little pinhole window of what you think is perfect and then everything else must be disordered. And now we're learning that the normal range is a lot wider than yeah. we first thought. So. so I have a funny story that several people will have heard already, but <laughs> when I decided to do my PhD, I thought I, I'm going to be teaching dysphagia. I need an example of a normal swallow. So I convinced my radiologist to let me fluoro myself. And, and we went and did quite a comprehensive fluoro. This would have been about 1999, 2000. At the time, we were just eyeballing our barium. And I was horrified to discover that on that day, I had some residue just above my UES. I couldn't feel it. <laughs> and yet it was there. And I had a lot of fun with it. I put a fake clinical story with it about a woman who had globus and like maybe a TIA and, and clinicians would be completely misled by this clinical story. They would expect to see a problem. They would see this little bit of residue and they would start texture modifying me. And, and yeah. I said to them, actually, that was me. And as far as I know, I don't have dysphagia. Yeah. So again, it's this, we've, we're trained to look for the tiniest abnormality and interpret it as pathological. And then a couple of years ago, my doctoral student, Sonia Malfenter was doing a normal study and you know, we've evolved in our methods over that time frame. We're now very, very picky about our barium. So I thought, oh, this would be fun. I'll, I'll retest myself and I'm cured. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I truly believe that the only difference between those two exams was the precision of our barium. That almost 20 years ago, we risked giving me dysphagia or the impression yeah. of dysphagia by not being careful about how we mixed our stimuli. You know, that's another message is we need to be really careful. That's a huge take-home message. Well, that was one of my most favorite parts of Dr. Humbert and Dr. Plowman's critical thinking and dysphagia management, where Dr. Humbert puts up a video and, you know, instantly everyone's like, oh my gosh, there's major <laughs> premature spillage and really delayed swallow. And, and then she says... Yeah, well, and, and Dr. Plowman fed into it too. And she was, you know, going on dissecting all these things. And then she says, this is one of my grad students, a 22 year old healthy normal. Yeah. And everyone in the room was just floored at how different normal swallows can be. So. Can be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ianessa talks a lot at the moment about how cognitively we can override certain aspects of our swallow. And so I was actually talking on a podcast with her recently where she actually thinks that people who aspirate or might actually suppress their cough responses because they're scared of being told they failed or they don't want to limit the exam. Yeah. And that's really an interesting possibility that there's also a cognitive behavioral overlay here that we may be oblivious to in our patients. That brings up a huge point. I was talking about something like that. I can't remember who I was talking about that with, but we've almost done that to ourselves as a profession and the skilled nursing facilities, you walk around in the cafeteria and someone coughs, you must have dysphagia. Mm -hmm. And automatically we sign them up for an eval, thicken their liquids and it's downhill from there. Yep. And so from then on that patient's gun shy to be in, in the dining room and have a cough. Yep. So I was talking with someone about that. You know, what if these patients are <clears throat> just trying to suppress the cough so that, you know, queen BSLP doesn't come around and pin them yep. as 
dysphagia and automatically thicken their liquids and it's a whole downward spiral from there. So yeah. Yeah, I, I would, yeah, I'd love to, to hear more about that too. So. Cool. So more questions. You said you wanted to ask about treatment. And... Yeah, yeah. It, you know, everyone is just wants to know more and more about treatment. And I think, like you said, we're at this real premature, you know, really early stages of what we know now. Now we know that compensatory strategies and thickened liquids aren't the be-all, end-all. They're rehabilitating the swallow is what we should be doing. You know, we're therapists. And just the main thing is everyone's always looking for, I guess, what's the latest and greatest treatment strategies that uh. you know, we can't, you know, we, we, that's a whole can of worms we can't go into, but what do we have the most evidence for? Oh gosh. Sort of generically, we have a growing body of evidence about specifically targeting particular physiology. And that's where I like to sit. So I really still believe that bag of all tricks approach is not the best way forward for our patients. And I'm concerned that throwing multiple things at a patient muddies the water. I absolutely appreciate clinically that you might say, well, you know, they're not closing their airway in a timely way. So there are two or three or four things out there that are logical for me to try. We're going to try them all. But on the research side, we need to do that in a cleaner stepwise fashion. I am really concerned that the gold standard of large randomized clinical trials is just not possible in this field. And I I actually think it's not really feasible for behavioral interventions at all. Um, it works for drugs, but behaviors are things that messy people do, yeah. and they, they do them differently. And to get large numbers, we actually have to lose what's interesting about the patient. So I have a study I published a couple of years ago on tongue strength, and I've said before, and I'll stand by this, that we enrolled people who showed what we called premature spillage at the time, or, or perhaps it was delayed swallow and poor tongue strength. But several of the people we enrolled might have had other things wrong with their swallow as well. And and if I were to take each of them individually and do a careful analysis, I'm not sure that I would have chosen tongue strength as the first and most logical thing to try. So they met the criteria for the study. They were enrolled. They did tongue strength. But the fact that we had messy outcomes probably reflects the fact that we had variability in the sample. And so we have this big tension between the call to have large randomized clinical trials and the fact that our patients are highly heterogeneous. So I really think we have a bit of a paradigm problem here in research and clinic. So I think clinically we need to really ask ourselves whether the treatments we're choosing are logical. Um, what do we know about them? We might have to take some leaps of faith. So if we're working with a cardiac patient, we might have to draw on evidence in stroke and say, mm. you know, physiologically, I think there's a reason to try this and I'm going to try it, but we won't be confident for a long time, probably. Yeah. yeah. So for me, tongue strength training, first of all, it's easy to do. There's absolutely no question that we can strengthen people's tongues. Whether strengthening people's tongues translates into a directly logical change in swallowing is still an unknown. And I'm going to be the first one to say we don't yet know. And the biggest gap in our tongue evidence is that nobody has done a no treatment control. So spontaneous recovery in the types of populations that have been studied is a potential confound. And we need to do that one day. Yeah. <laughs> one yeah, day. Yeah, and yeah. somehow we jumped over that step and we've been looking at, you know, do you do the tongue pressure exercise this way or that way or the other way? And I think we need to go back and do that 
controlled step. The other thing, and I think you've said this in your podcast, is we really don't know what we mean by intensity. Mm -hmm. So how many exercises is enough? How frequently do we need to do them? What does it take to fatigue the swallowing muscles? I'm actually not sure we've hit that yet. You know, when we go to the gym and we get on the treadmill, we know what the cardiac zone is and we know what the weight loss target zone is. We know about endurance and we know about building power we're still asking those questions and swallowing. So I think we need to stop and come up with a careful program and stick to it and try, but we're still collecting evidence. Yeah. Yeah. So I spend a lot of time on tongue pressure training. I've heard several of your podcasts talk about MDTP. I'm not trained in MDTP, but from what I know of it, one of the aspects that I think is really interesting is the emphasis swallowing real boluses. And challenging people with the thing that's difficult. And I like that concept from a neuroplasticity perspective. If we play safe all the time and only practice in the safe zone, we're never going to get better. So I think that's a really interesting principle to apply. I think there's a growing body of evidence about exercise-based approaches. So whether that's EMST, Lee Silverman, we still don't know whether that really impacts swallowing. Been waiting for a long time for promised results, um, and I hope they'll come soon. I think when paired with biofeedback, these exercise modalities are starting to show that change is definitely possible, and with the caution that it can be maladaptive in some yep. cases. Beyond that, I think we're still still learning. I do think Dr. Humbert's work on chin down has been clarifying lately that it seems to be helpful for facilitating laryngeal vestibule closure. And I would say that I think that late or incomplete laryngeal vestibule closure is the single most frequent explanation for penetration and aspiration. So I think that it's very simple to evaluate a chin down in somebody and see whether it's helpful. And yes, it can be unhelpful um, in some people, but I think it's probably one of the simpler techniques out there. It has to be done properly again. Yeah. So let me ask you this, because I've been wanting to ask you this for a long time. So one of my blog posts that I wrote a while back, and in the textbook that I was referencing, they differentiate between chin tuck and chin down. And you had commented that it's the same Uh, thing. Yeah, I don't know for sure about where they got the distinction. But when the E-list serves started back in the 90s, there was a particular comment from actually a Canadian, but we'll (laughs) leave that aside, that introduced some doubt into the field about how to do a chin down or a chin tuck and talked about the difference between flexing at the neck so that your, your chin is approximating your chest and you're looking at the floor or looking at your knees versus pulling your head back in what I would call a chin retraction. And the reality is we have absolutely no evidence about chin retraction. It might be an interesting maneuver, but nobody has studied it. And then there was a really interesting study by a Japanese speech pathologist, Sumiko Okada, who just because of translation thought that the chin tuck and the chin down must be two different things. And she asked clinicians in Japan and North America how they understood the two. And it showed that there was a lot of confusion. And she actually did a nice paper where she looked at different degrees of chin angle change with or without head flexion and neck flexion. But the reality is if you go back to Dr. Logeman's original work, she called it a chin down. And somewhere over history, it 
picked up the sort of synonym chin tuck, but I believe that they're exactly the same thing. And that this other thing, this chin retraction, I don't know what that is. I don't know how it works. I don't know if it works. And I think that that speaks to the possibility in assessment that we can be creative. We can try different things as long as we can replicate them. Sure. If you have a reason to think that interesting to look at in your patient, then try it. But for none of these things, should we apply them without evaluating? Yep. Yeah. And I think that kind of brings back to when we work with head and neck cancer patients, we're very creative with them depending on their surgical resections and Mm -hmm. things like that. So, you know, I mean, yeah, why can't we be a little more creative in our postures and strategies if it works? Yeah. One of the things that we've never controlled for in our studies of head position is spinal curvature. And the effect of a chin down can be totally different in a person with kyphosis versus lordosis or these different spinal malformations. So I think you can't treat it generically. Yeah. yeah. Well, good. Thank you for clarifying that. You're welcome. All right. Yeah, cool. well, this has been great. You're welcome. And actually, your comment about finding that in a textbook just makes me want to say that there are some things in textbooks <laughs> that we should question. My favorite or most, the one that annoys me the most is the watery eyes yeah, yeah, sign. Yeah. There is zero Thank evidence. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Zero evidence that watery eyes means anything. Thank you. Sure. I choked once a couple of years ago, actually. And you're still here. Another interesting story, but (laughs) we don't have time for that today. I can guarantee that my eyes were watery because I went into laryngospasm and I was completely airway obstructed. Did I aspirate? No, actually. For me, the obstruction was sitting in my piriform sinuses post-cricoid and my larynx had ramped closed. So I don't think runny nose and watery eyes should be things that we put weight in, in terms of whether people have or have not aspirated. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good point. I was talking to Dr. Brodsky a few days ago and I I wrote something and he was like, where did you find this? And I was like, in a textbook. And he's like, "Mm, you got to be careful about some things. So yeah, these things. And then they, they get like a life of their own. They can, they do, they they do. And actually, that's another comment. It happens in science, too. I'm actually currently in discussion with an editor because there's an article that that my group found a few years ago and cited in a review. And it's from a very obscure journal from Asia. And it looked like a really great article. And the measurements seemed to be done precisely. And the confidence intervals were tight and looked like sort of an exemplary article. And we cited it. And now many, many other people have cited it our citation of this article. And it sort of gained this place of authority in our literature. We've never heard of these people, the, the first author or any of the authors of this study. They've never published anything else in dysphagia. Wow. They've never come to a dysphagia research meeting. Nobody knows who they are. And if you look them up, the rest of their publications are in something completely unrelated. So the the more I see this cited, the more uncomfortable I become. And the more these little warning bells go off to ask, is this too good to be true? Is this too perfect? Could this be, and I, yeah, this is really yeah. dangerous for me to say in public, but could this be fraudulent? Could it be that somebody made these data up? And I don't know, but it's a risk. And we're starting to yeah, see yeah. those kinds of issues pursued a little bit in science. There have been a couple of famous examples, even in speech pathology in recent years. So just 
you know, I guess it's always buyer beware, read with a critical eye, ask yeah. questions, and you should be able to write to authors and ask them to defend or explain their own work. And that should contribute to your sense yeah. of how strong uh, data are. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and thank you for saying that. You know, that's a big reason I want to do this podcast because I want us to to have open relationships with the researchers. It's and so important. Yeah, research is only as valuable as it is if it is motivated by clinical reality and if it comes full circle back and impacts our ability to help people with dysphagia. That's to me the goal that we are all fighting for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you guys do some incredible work. And for some reason, it just gets lost in cyberspace or cyber journals. I don't know. And it just is not getting out there and not being applied. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's silly to think that in this day of technology that some of this stuff's just sitting in a journal somewhere and not being used. So. Well, and hence the power of podcasts. Yes, right? <laughs> very much so. Yes. Yeah. So thank you. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Dr. My Steele. pleasure. And um, email me if I can be of help. Oh, thank you so much. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.